Amen. That gentleman is a master potter, and he uh, operates in East Nashville. And I did not know this before the video was filmed, but one of uh, my family's uh, closest family, I mean, really close family friends from years of ministry and worshiping together, um, the, the wife of that family, that's her brother. And I didn't know this. And how that came together uh, is that particular potter uh, works, has an office across from our campus at Lachlan Springs in East Nashville. And he became friends with David Hanna, whom you guys raised here. And they have, and has become part of that church and has made mugs for the staff over there and done ministry together in the community. So it's an incredible uh, full, full circle story there um, with that potter. Stand with me, please. We are going through Psalm 23 for three weeks. This is week two, and I've asked you to consider memorizing it, Uh, and so we're going to recite it together this morning um, one time. I believe it's up. Do we have it, Ryan? There we go. Let's say it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So I was up early this morning, as is my Sunday morning custom. And my son Lewis was the first one up as is his custom. And he came in the room and I was reading over this manuscript and he said, Hey daddy, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm getting ready for this morning, buddy. He said, Oh, is that your sermon? I said, yeah, buddy. Why is it always so long, daddy? (laughs) I disagree. But I am thrilled to be in this text with you again this morning. And the Titans don't play until 2.05, so (laughs) buckle up. Just kidding, just kidding. Y'all, we live in a time and a place where we have, we really have much more than we need. My goodness, my family has experienced that over the last couple of weeks as you have brought us so much food. And we thank you for that. Leslie Ann is is not with us this morning, but she's getting better. And uh, she sends her greetings. And um, she is is recovering uh, well. And we are so grateful. But regardless of how much we have relative to anybody else around us, just being in the U.S. puts us in the top few percentage points in the world and in wealth. Not many around us actually want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. 
talent abounds around us. There are so many gifted folks. There have been, I mean, my life, I've had so many gifted folks around me in my life, and I'm so grateful. One of the effects of that is that I, we talked about anxiety last week, and this morning we're moving into the direction of depression, but they're, they're linked as we consider what it means for the psalmist to encourage us that the Lord does restore our souls. And being around all these gifted folks, I have spent much of my life imagining failing, and that has given me a, a great deal of anxiety, if I'm being transparent. But I think, well, I actually really strongly think, believe that failure is not the opposite of success. Failure is often the result of success. Or realizing how much success is around us, how much lack of want there is around us can result in failure. The more we have, the more we see that others have, the more we stand to lose. The greater our accomplishments are, the greater even our smallest failures seem to be. The price of success is often the fear of failure. Elijah, for instance, one of the Lord's greatest prophets, he succeeded by almost every measure. And after all of that succeeding, he was flat worn out. His perspective was shot. And he shrunk away and he hid himself in a cave. I've heard it explained that he was exhausted, that success had worn him out. And and more than that, the fear of failure that grew with that success wore him out. Again, this was one of the Lord's greatest, perhaps the greatest prophet Israel had known. Almost 8% of adults in our world deal with depression Almost 8%. So I'll say what I said last week in terms of anxiety, and and it's even more true with depression. Go to your doctor. Take your medicine. Go see a counselor. Um, Those are are ways that the Lord has gifted us, given us to to deal with that which ails us. Mental um, illness is not is to be taken so seriously as seriously as physical illness. And here the psalmist says, "Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me." You see, even beyond that 8% who deal with depression, every Christian, every person experiences the valley of the shadow of death. So I ask you, are you afraid today? Do you fear failure like I do so often? Do you fear not really knowing God or or not really pleasing God? Are you ashamed of something that you've done? Something that you have not done? Are you doing your devotions? Are you reading your Bible? Are you gathering with like-minded people at church, and yet you really cannot tell what difference it is making. Perhaps like Elijah, our perspective is out of whack. 
Mine often is. Are you dreading something in your future? At work? Perhaps at home? Do you have a difficult relationship with your parents? Or your children? Your spouse? Significant others? Relationships are not anything if they're not difficult. Even our relationship with God is not promised to be without valleys. I may have mentioned this to you, but over Christmas I reread Eugene Peterson's great work titled A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And I've told you again and again, or I've tried to, that there's, there's no place that you're supposed to be on this journey with Jesus other than farther along. And I believe that with all my heart. And I, and I would tell my friends at my pre, where I, church I served at previously, I would tell them that. And one of the first times I mentioned it, I got pushback, and it was good pushback. It's like, yeah, Brandon, that, that sounds good, but we, we do backtrack <laughs> as Christians. I do. We do slip and fall. We may even go backwards. And, and it's certainly, I, don't, I certainly don't want you to think that it is true that life will just get easier when we live it with Jesus. That is just not the case. So, so while I do want you to understand that we are trying to participate in this long obedience in the same direction, that we are moving further and further along, and yes, we do mature, disciple one another, move more along the journey of faith. Hard times will come. We may even go backwards. But we can't hide in a cave. The valley of the shadow of death is not to be avoided. I'm not saying just dive right in, being glad that you're in it, but understand that it comes. We have to move forward. We can't stay on our knees all all the time in prayer, in our prayer closet. We have to get out and take our prayer into the world, walking with Jesus, doing what God has called us to do. We have work to do. We have plans to carry out. And no matter what comes our way, we must be able to say, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. I like to jog. I used to like to run. Now I've gotten older and slower, and I call it jogging. And there are, I don't know that I would do this anymore, but on particularly busy day, I, I do, I get up early and run, but like, there was a time in my life where I got up however early I needed to, to, to go run, exercise. And what that did this time of year is that would, that would render you outside running in pitch black, right? Because the sun doesn't come up to like 930 or something here. I don't know. But, and I was in this particular place that was on the way to wherever I was going that day. And I knew I could run there, but I wasn't familiar with it. I knew that there were running trails, but I wasn't particularly familiar. And I, for whatever reason, my headlamp, which is important when it's pitch black outside, was not in my glove compartment. So I got there where I was going to run and it wasn't there. And I just decided, well, I have to run because I'm addicted to this and that's not good, but that's another sermon. And so I just took off running on this trail and I couldn't see where I was going. And that is rather stupid. Okay. And I kid you not, I thought I was following the path 
And this is the strangest thing. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but one second you're just kind of running down the path and the next second you're literally on your face in a ditch. (laughs) And it happened just like that. And I literally was, I had no idea where I was. Had it been 30 feet down, I would have fallen all 30 feet because it was dark and there was a valley there and I ran right in it. But I tell you, while that wasn't great, I have come to understand that the valley of the shadow of death is, is not always completely bad. Even in that experience, I learned that it probably wasn't a good idea to take off running without my headlamp. Suffice it to say, church, and I need you to hear me, that the valleys are inevitable. But they can teach us much about God and ourselves and our church family and what God is calling us to do and to be here from this corner of the world, which is so important. Yeah, I want you to understand there are 168 hours in a week. And I want you to embrace that jargon and even repeat it. This sounds cool. And the things we say as a church, we, you know, we want them to sound cool. We want them to be attractive. But, oh, I want you to believe it so much more than I want you to just say it. I want you to hide in your heart through the wisdom of this text and so many others and the fellowship that we enjoy here together that God has a specific and a powerful purpose for our church and that this matters like a whole lot. So much so that it is vital that we understand that the valleys are inevitable because when they come, we cannot let them deter us to the point where we give up or we even pause because there is so much great work to do. The psalmist says, I will fear no evil. We can't. Can't fear failure. Can't fear any of those other things you might have connected with that I mentioned. The valleys are inevitable. We must know that. It's imperative that we have one another on this journey. As I told you last week or two weeks ago, that has been made so obvious to me and my family as we have dealt with an unfortunate time with Leslie Ann, but so much to praise God about within that, the way you've loved us. It's imperative that we have one another on this journey. And I hope you enjoy this fellowship as much as my family has in the last few days and months. I mean, I could have used a partner on that run that I fell in the ditch, right? We have to have one another. More important, our text reminds us us that we have a shepherd that goes before us. And is with us. I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And hear me. The shepherd. Think about the, if you were here last week, think about the sheep I had up here with me. I don't have it this week. But that little sheep, helpless as it is. If you weren't here, it wasn't a real sheep. There are rules against that. Probably. The shepherd doesn't go anywhere with those sheep doesn't lead the sheep anywhere that the shepherd has not already been as Jacob read the powerful passage from first John 
in our call to worship. It is precisely that love for the sheep that causes the shepherd to never go anywhere with the sheep that the shepherd has not already been. And we can trust our shepherd wherever we are led. So a couple of things about that as we specifically look at the valley in verse 4. We do go through the valley, but we're not alone. We are not alone. Here's what happens in the summer. The skilled shepherds that have the sheep, they, they move to the high ground in the summer. The ground where there has been snow for however many months, the snow melts away, and what results are pretty sweet Pastures, But you need to understand that when the text earlier in the, in the psalm talks about green pastures, these aren't lush pastures of rich alfalfa. We're talking about the wilderness here where pasture can be very scant and it takes a skilled shepherd to allow the sheep to find where the food and the water actually is. So in the summer... The skilled shepherds take these, these long journeys with the sheep up the mountain to find lush, lusher pastures, higher ground. The psalm begins in verses 1 through 3 with, with not wanting, with green pastures, with us resting beside still waters. But as Philip Keller explains, and a shepherd looks at Psalm 23, this is... This is during the time that the the sheep and the shepherd are at home. During the winter months in lower land where where there's not the harshness of winter, at least as much. And so they have these neighbors and they're like, they're sitting there bragging about how well the shepherd takes care of them. But in verse four, we see the transition taking place and the shepherd leading the sheep up the mountain to the more dangerous higher ground, the longer journey that requires a great deal of work and effort and is very dangerous for the sheep. And in this moment, in verse four, the psalmist shifts and addresses the shepherd directly because the times are are tougher, more severe. And the psalmist directs the attention to the shepherd, to the Savior. I remember... Growing up, my dad used to take bike trips with his buddies across the country. And I don't know what I thought about this as a kid, but that seems rather extreme, doesn't it? They would just ride for like nine or ten days, and then we would follow them and like go on vacation wherever dad ended up riding to. And he would lay in the bed all week and complain of muscle cramps. But <laughs> this one particular summer, we were, in, we were going to Door County, Wisconsin, which is such a beautiful place. It's the only time I've ever been there, and I was young, but I remember how gorgeous it was. And we, we followed Dad. He rode his bike up there, and we went up there with him in vacation. Cool place. I remember on the way, though, we, we stopped, my brothers and I and my mother. We stopped at a Holiday Inn in Indianapolis to spend the night. And what I remember about this is that we, we got a particular room, and Mom had gone, I don't know, what, for whatever reason, my brothers and I were in the room together, and my mom was not in the room. She had been somewhere, and, and the door broke. And, and we, we were in the room, and she couldn't get in. 
we were in there watching TV. We were fine. But mom was outside and, and the, the hotel manager couldn't figure out how to get the door open. And I remember her being hysterical outside the door because her children, her little boys were stuck in the room. And my brothers and I just sitting there without a care in the world. You know why? We probably knew the door was locked, but we could see through the window that our mother was outside. We weren't afraid. Their mom was. We were just watching TV. So the shepherd takes the sheep on a journey to higher ground, but the shepherd doesn't leave the sheep's side. With them the entire time. But you can't take the shortest distance to the top of the mountain. You can't just be airlifted. You can't even go from point A to point B the shortest distance. You have to go diagonal. Have you seen the drive, like a house that maybe sits down lower than the road or maybe up higher? When there's a hill involved with the driveway, the driveway never goes straight. It has to go diagonally where you take less of that hill along the way. Well, it's no different to get to the top of the mountain. One only gains higher ground, y'all, through climbing up through the valleys. And what awaits in those valleys? Now, if you're not with me here, this is a metaphor for our lives. This is this long obedience in the same direction. We're the sheep, but we have a shepherd. Along the path in those valleys, you have water coming down that we talked about last week, particularly during flash floods that create the wadis, that create the rushing water that stands opposed to the still waters that the Lord leads us by, that so often results in sheep drowning or even humans drowning in the dry, arid wilderness, which is incredible to think about, but it happens. You have avalanches coming off the sides of these mountains. You have rock slides. You have polluted waters that the sheep will drink from and get sick from without the shepherd's care. You have predators that raid the flock along the way, and they hide in these nooks and these crannies along the valley of the shadow of death. This is what the psalmist is alluding to. And every night, the shepherd will, along the way, build a a makeshift fence to keep the sheep within. And there's always at least a a crack in that fence because you have to leave some place for the sheep to get out. And the shepherd will literally sleep at that enclosure every night, laying down across the open area, saying to himself, much of just like the love that Jacob spoke of from first John, the wolves, the lions, the cougars, they may get in, but they're going to at least have to go through me. That's how much your shepherd loves you. That's what God does for you. You don't have to earn that. You can't earn that. None of you are good enough for that. I'm not either. But that is how we are loved. The psalmist speaks of this. God has protected the psalmist from all difficulty. That's what God does. The psalmist here has gone through the worst and they are still in one piece, still able to proclaim this psalm, still able to sing this song, not abandoned, helped. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. 
the psalmist and us, we walk through the valley. It's the only way up. It's the only way to higher ground. It's through the valley. Second, last. We get grace along the way. We get grace along the way. The way up the mountain, through the valley, the longer route is the preferred route also because there's food and water along the way. Pools gather and the shepherd leads the sheep to the cleaner pools. Tufts of grass gather along the valley and the shepherd shows the sheep where they are. God gives us what we need along the way. Manna from heaven came to the Israelites in the wilderness daily. God gives us what we need along the way. Ken Stegall, our chairman of the deacons, reminded me this week that worry is dealing with tomorrow's problems on today's pasture. I love that. We have what we need for today. You see, the food along the way would gather overnight and grow because dew would accumulate on the bottom of rocks in the wilderness and you would have that dew provide enough water for tufts of grass to grow out from under the rocks and the shepherd would skillfully lead the sheep to these rocks where the grass would show up in the mornings thanks to the morning dew it reminds me of lamentations chapter 3 verses 22 through 24 because of the lord's faithful love we don't perish for his mercies never end they're new every morning great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. We learn to trust God on this journey as we are provided what we need incrementally. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want it. One of the burdens we have here because we have so much surplus around us as we may be duped into believing that a verse like that, a a decree like that from the psalmist means that we're going to have so much more than we can ever ask or imagine, want or need, which is actually true. It just doesn't often look like what we think it should. We get grace along the way. We get what we need for today because that's actually what is best for us. Friend, I believe that you have everything that you need for your faith in Jesus Christ and your practice of living out what that faith calls you to. So think about the power of understanding that, of having that perspective in the midst of whatever trial we are going through, wherever we may feel like we are falling short in life. You have everything that you need to weather this storm with the family and the friends, with the church around you, with the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, that guides you. We are in this unshakable kingdom that I try to remind you of every week. And that kingdom is not in trouble. And neither are you, regardless of what you are dealing with. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It doesn't mean it's not necessary. It doesn't mean that it won't happen. It actually means that it will, but it will not overcome you. It doesn't have to overcome you. I asked, do you have victory? Do you have an experience in your life that you can remember, recall, and rely on 
as you go through the valleys again. That's one of the most important things we will do together in our groups, in our prayer times together, and how we share life together is that we share each other's valleys so that we can remind one another of our valleys. Because we must remember how God has brought us through to trust that God will bring us through again. I'm watching my sweet wife process and do that right now as she considers being ill, being loved through illness. Be sweet to your mother, boys. The sheep learned to trust that they would have what they needed along the way, even in the most dreadful times. 65 years ago, Rosa Parks, in December, decided that she wasn't going to sit in the back of the bus. Now, this was not done on a whim. This was months of prayer, frustration, bottled up. This was strategic. This was she and Fred Gray strategizing that it might now be the time to act. And she believed that God would give her grace for this journey in whatever came from her righteous act of civil disobedience that December day. By November, 11 months later, the boycott that was birthed that day was still going. Black churches had arranged carpools for 11 months. They had carpooled everywhere they went to get to work. And Mayor Gale Montgomery sought and secured legal proceedings to end the carpool so that blacks would be forced to ride the buses again in the rear of the buses. In his book, Strength to Love, Martin Luther King Jr., whom we celebrate again this weekend and celebrate we should, tells of an episode in Montgomery, Alabama on November the 13th. This was 11 months after Rosa Parks did what she did that day. It was Dr. King's responsibility to tell the people at a mass meeting at the church what Mayor Gale's intentions were. And he said this, for the first time, I almost shrank from, appearing, from even appearing before them. Evening came, and Dr. King did find the courage to speak. And he said these words. We have moved all these months, he said, in the daring faith that God is, in fact, with us in this valley, in this struggle. The many experiences of days gone by have vindicated our faith in a marvelous way. And tonight, we must believe that a way will be made where it seems there is no way. And even though he said these words, he said he could feel a cold breeze of pessimism pass over the audience. Morale was low. He recalled that the night was darker that night than a thousand midnights. And the court opened and the hearings began with obvious intentions for Mayor Gale to influence Judge Carter to rule in a certain way in the favor of the city was the cause of the whole civil rights movement to die after so much progress had been made? Absolutely not. During the noon recess, a commotion began in the courtroom, and Mayor Gale was called back to the judge's quarters. And then a reporter came to Dr. King's table and said this to Dr. King, here is the decision that you've been waiting for. The note read, the United States Supreme Court today unanimously ruled bus segregation to be unconstitutional in Alabama. 
Dr. King wrote at that moment, my heart throbbed with inexpressible joy. The darkest hour of our struggle had become the first hour of victory. The shepherd does not lead us anywhere that the shepherd has not already been. If the good folks in Alabama who fought for equality so many years ago, and in many cases still fight for it today, can trust that the shepherd is still leading them and us to a place where every child of God can understand who their shepherd is. And I believe that we can trust it as well today. Because the shepherd has not gone anywhere. The shepherd has gone everywhere and is not leading you anywhere the shepherd has not already been. I pray that you will trust that today. Because the truth of the gospel is that our shepherd, and if you don't know this, hear it now, went all the way to the top of Calvary with cross and endured that cross so that you and I would never meet that fate. If you don't know that today, it's our prayer that you would move closer to knowing that. That you would understand how much you are loved. That you understand that you have a shepherd who loves you so much. We're going to extend a time for you to just pray and consider this. We always offer the altar up here for that. And it is open. And you are welcome to come down here and pray. Or you can make where you are an altar. I ask that you consider the valleys. That you consider what it would look like to not be overcome by them. Pray that God would help you to not be overcome by them. That's the heart of the shepherd. To know that you are never alone. Let's pray.